Welcome to another episode of Live Sound Bootcamp. I'm Brendan Draper. I'm Joe Santarpia. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm I, I didn't realize. John. I, I don't forgot. remember who spoke second. I yeah, forgot. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. There Whatever. was a pause, so I jumped in. It has been a month since we've uh, done we're a rusty. podcast together, so we're a little it, we're we're getting it back together. We're rusty, it back together. right? Right. <laughs> Hope, yeah. Hopefully, we can get the band back together, well. guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Let's get back in the garage. Yeah. I am in my so, garage. So what are we talking about today? Uh, we're talking about front of house mixing part two. So uh, we're getting into the fun stuff. EQ, gates, compressors, all the knobs, all the, all the knobs, uh, the mixing all, part. Yeah. You, you know, we, we get to finally answer that question. Do you know what all those knobs do? <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's uh, favorite question. God. Everybody's favorite question. No, no. My favorite question is, are you the DJ? Yeah. Yeah, those are the two. Those I mean, tell me, you ones. guys have been asked that, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. Okay, because I was going to say, if that was just me, I would feel like I would just well, be sad. Are you the DJ? <laughs> I, yeah. I, I you, know, you know what the annoying part is? That sometimes my answer is kind of yes, because like the house music, yeah, I'm yeah. picking it, I'm playing whatever whatever I want. Yeah. Off so kind of yes. Off my free Spotify account with ads. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Invest in music that you can play. You ever have to log into a Spotify into your Spotify account on like a house iPad or something oh like God. that? And then yeah, I've had to do that. It can be messy. <laughs> and then you forget that you're logged in, and like later on, someone's like changing your Spotify while you're listening, oh, yeah. like in your car. No, yeah. I don't. I don't mess with that. Bro. Yeah, I I swear there's someone else on my Spotify because I keep getting like Ariana Grande playlists and Megan Trainor playlists oh, added and, and Frozen. To, someone is super into Frozen. You don't have to hide and it. And I delete it. You don't have to hide it. I, I mean, got kids. Fair enough, dude. Look at I'll admit I do listen to Ariana Grande here and there. I don't think I've listened to Megan Trainor before, but I've definitely not listened to the Frozen soundtrack. You're missing a hundred thousand times. You're and whoever out. is on my account really likes it. I, I'm probably missing out. They got You're not kids all about that bass. Right? <laughs> is that is that Megan Trainor? Yeah, that's Megan Trainor. Man, I feel like I should know that. All about I, that. I'm, bass. I'm out of it. Okay. It's, all right. It's so, from so like we're, we're all a little bit out of this. We're all a little bit out of this these days. Uh, so you know, since it's been a month since we've done an episode, Brandon, what have you been doing for this this past couple weeks? Oh man, I've been I've been working on some mixes at home, like in the you know in my little garage studio, and I've actually been mm-hmm. pra- I went back to practicing drums a lot. So I've been I set up my Ooh, drum really? kit. Yeah, I've been doing these like online courses. And just like kind of drilling in, doing like a couple hours of practice a day and like trying to actually get good at drums. <laughs> nice. Oh. Are you feeling the progress? I definitely, there is definitely progress. I do like a little video of myself after every rehearsal, just like kind of freestyling and it's getting better. You know, like when I was a kid playing drums, I never really focused on technique, like hand technique and mm-hmm. wrist technique and all that. You know, I never really drilled it in. So. I'm kind of well, doubling time, down. Plenty of time to now. Yeah. So much time. Yeah, it's to true. Do it. Yeah. So having fun with that. What, what about you guys? What have you guys been up to, Ryan? I spent a bunch of time shooting my room in terms of uh, uh, acoustics, and I built 18 acoustic panels, two massive uh, eight-foot-tall traps, uh, a bunch mm-hmm. of tube traps. I put them all up in my room reshot the room and the measurements are way better than before but I, we were just having this conversation a little bit ago i actually don't know how accurate it's supposed to be to be considered a good room so I, i'm in that spot now where i'm trying to understand whether or not i should spend an insane amount of extra time to get it even better or if where it is is good enough but also in the meantime i've done i think four mixes and the clients have been super happy on all of them, and they've translated really well. So I guess it's good enough. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like it's... Sounds like it's... There. Sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've, I've been trying to stick to, to still doing audio stuff. But at the same time, you know, with, with all this happening, there was certainly something really nice to going to building something, uh, mm-hmm. you know, building these acoustic panels. I also built some outdoor furniture. Because at the end of it, you get to physically hold this thing that you made. So you actually feel accomplished as opposed to, you know, going on the internet and watching a bunch of webinars and this and that at the end of it. Yeah. You know, some new stuff, but it's not as easy to feel accomplished. And in these times, I feel like that was something I needed. I needed to be able to 
hold something that I created and go, yeah, I did that and know that I've done something useful with my time. Yeah. Do you, you know what I mean? Oh, 100%. Right there with you. Yeah. And, and Joe, you've been doing that kind of stuff with your time because I gave you a set of speakers that I had broken. And then I broke them more. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, well, you tried to fix them. Well, yeah, you know, it was a, you know, it was a good, uh, it was fun while it lasted. But um, yeah, you know, but other than that, you know, uh, some, some more successful kits, you know, some audio gear, that Don Classics 250 EQ modeled after the uh, Sontec 250, that thing's great. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's pretty cool that you're getting into building uh, pieces of gear. Uh, what what I've always thought is cool about building gear is, you know, it's easy to to change something on, especially nowadays. It's easy to change something on a screen and hear it make a change. There's something mentally completely different to me when you swap a resistor on something and hear it make a change. Yeah, and that's like hearing physics. It's work. a little bit mind blowing, but obviously, obviously, it is the physics of how this stuff works. And yeah. I haven't built gear in so long that I've kind of forgotten how beautiful that is. The idea of just changing a physical component and having it change something like that. It's, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just getting into it, you know, still at the pretty beginning stages of it. Um, but yeah, it's really exciting. It's, you know, just like you said, like hold holding something in your hand that you like, you know, I don't know, constructed in this time, especially something as cool as a fucking, you know, 250 EQ, you know, GML type, thing you yeah. know i'm super stoked on it um and i'm gonna build another channel in fact um but yeah and uh related build two more channels i'm gonna build i'm actually gonna build three more channels because i'm gonna build myself oh because you're making e- another one for yourself um, and then e- two for me yeah yeah exactly i'm gonna build yours yes. first but because uh, i don't have the rack space yet but yeah um, oh that's awesome man. And, super cool and loosely related to that you know um uh you know we've got we're gonna have some quite a bit more time off here so uh i i enrolled in school so I, I enrolled at ccsf i'm going to take some electrical classes in oh, august sick. um there's like a beginning beginners electrical whatever certificate um yeah and uh so hopefully that'll expand that hobby a little bit more you know i don't think there's any downside to knowing more about this kind of stuff and you know knowing all this stuff about electrics is going to help you in in your audio career as well as in, you know, a career while you're at home and, you know, there's there's so much, there's so much to do there. That's awesome. Yeah. It's not, you know, it can't can't hurt unless I shock myself, which I'm sure to do, but yeah, I I guess it could kill you. (laughs) Right. But, uh, yeah, CCSF is free and, uh, for SF residents and, um, you know, so we're fortunate enough to have, have that whole thing. So it's literally, it's no skin off my back. I'm literally sitting here doing nothing. So, Back to school, baby. <laughs> nice, man. Really Thanks. nice. Yeah. Really nice. Thanks. So, should we should we jump into this topic? Yeah, let's, yeah, let's get into it. It's time. All right. So, I, I think the first thing we should jump into before getting into, like, the specifics of each of the portions of building the mix, you know, like high pass, EQ, gates, comps, uh, fader levels, grouping, VCAs, maybe we should kind of jump into how each of us actually approaches a channel. Like, for example, let's, let's pretend this. Brendan, you're sitting in front of house, mm-hmm. and the monitor engineer is now gone. All right, hit the kick drum. What are you going to do? Like, what, what's the order of things you do at this point, sitting in front of house? My order. So, I, f- I first look at meters, obviously, make sure I'm seeing something come up on that channel. And I want to mm-hmm. he- I want to hear it first, but I also don't want to blow out the speakers, of course. So, I um, I start gaining up until it's at a good level, and then I start bringing my fader up so I can start to hear what the kick drum actually sounds like coming through the speakers because I want to get there first before deciding on any changes of what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And then from that moment on, it's kind of just a series of decisions. So, like, I hear it, and I think to myself. Oh, I like that or I don't like that. What do I like about it? What right. do I not like about it? And so so at this yeah. point though, in your head you already have some idea of what you want this kick to sound like based on what the artist is? Uh yeah, I mean it kind of depends, I guess. If I know the artist and I know what I want the kick drum to sound like for them and I've worked with them before, then yeah, of course. But if I if it's just a band that I've never heard before, um then I'll go for like my default, I guess, which is just like I have different ideas in my head and my ears of what 
the instruments, what like what they ideally sound like to me. If the, does that make sense? It's like this is this is an annoying question, but where does the idea in your head of what that instrument should sound like come from? Do you know what I mean? Is it just from experience from doing this for a long time? You know that this kind of tone works and this one doesn't, or or what is it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's from experience of both doing live sound and then just listening to music for years and years. You know, so. That's a good point. Just listening to music really does help with giving you kind of direction. Yeah, yeah. and, it, and it cha- it's, a cha- it's a moving target, you know? Like, each totally. year, it changes for me. Like, oh, like, I can honestly say at the beginning of when I started doing live sound, like, I probably thought that things... Uh, I want to say, like, I didn't know what it should sound like, or I had a different perception of how good something gotcha. could sound. And it changes over time. And when I listen back to my mixes, you know, then I can see where I'm at and uh, compare them to where I think I should be. That that makes sense. Yeah. All right. So you've got, you've got the sound in your head. Yeah. And you've seen it on the meter. Right. And then I go for the tools that I have at my disposal. So, I mean, probably the biggest one is EQ. Um, I, if there's something that sounds like really cr- crazy weird, like a weird tone that's ringing out or something like that, then I'll, I'll, I'll make corrective changes. And, mm-hmm. um, I mean, for the kick drum, like I might go specifically to a gate. It, it, it depends. I mean, for me, it just depends on the instrument. It's like the really source. dependent on what the instrument sounds like. Right. And the room I'm in mm-hmm. <laughs> and the PA. So there's a lot of factors, but like, right. I don't know. So basically, this is like the most annoying question ever. <laughs> it's, it's a hard question, you know? <laughs> there's so many little paths that you can kind of go down, yeah. There's, there's so many, because if right. I'm in like a small club, then it's like, oh, well, I just pull it up. Like sometimes if you pull it up and it's like, oh, that sounds great because you're relying more on the sound of the drum in the room. But like... Physically coming from the stage, right? Right. But then you can just like boost it up in the PA a little bit and you're there. But if I'm in like a bigger venue, then I really need to like sculpt it more or i i seem to right, need to sculpt, sculpt it, it into more. like a final sound yeah yeah and joe is is the process kind of the same for you yeah 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 i guess if i were if you know maybe to clarify a little i guess you know set your gain you know establish gain structure first and foremost um and like you know basic right. level um and then and then crit- a critical listening moment where you are kind of like critically analyzing your source and figuring out, you know, uh, where, where, what direction you're going to go with it. Um, now, now we're going to get a little bit more general cause again, it, it depends on the source. Um, but you know, if there's a glaring problem happening frequency wise or feedback wise, we may go for another gain adjustment or, or the EQ, like, you know, like Brendan was saying. And, um, you know, if something is just like, if you know, if it's a guitar and, and like the top end is just so blisteringly nasty, like it has to go first and foremost, just to get this damn thing, you know, uh, audible here, you know, that, that shit's got to go. Okay, good. Now it's audible. Now we can treat it a little bit more. Um, and then, you know, a bit of a, uh, uh, a back and forth between EQ and dynamics. Uh, again, uh, source specific. Um, there was, I don't know who it was. So, but so you kind of approach it in steps then? So it's like you, you, you get it audible and then kind of tailor and then kind of tailor more un- y- until you're at that final spot? Yeah, cor- corrective, you know, gain structure, then corrective, and then then sweetness. You know what I mean? Like, gotcha. Yeah. uh, Don't bother trying to get the beef out of the kick drum. If it like is like super papery and like, and some of that crap, you know, is, is, is all messed up. Like get it, get it audible first and like, you know, not offensive before trying to make it sweet. (laughs) We're throwing around a lot of like (laughs) heady terms here, but, um, well, I think that's the thing, and this this is a creative process, right? So yeah. there are gonna be heady terms in here, right? Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and then and then again, specifics. Someone, I, I can't recall who it was, but you know, someone had mentioned this, you know, regarding compression versus EQ and their kind of order of operations for that. Um, you know, someone said, and this kind of changed my whole philosophy behind that too. Is uh, you know, if you're go if you know you're going to compress something, you know, 
compress it before you EQ it because, you know, ch- there's a chance, there's a very good chance, in fact, that just compressing it will take care of any of the issues that you were going to EQ. Right. So, you know, yeah. again, it's kind of source dependent and, you know, try to figure out what might work best for you. Um in terms of in terms of that but i guess what we're, we're we're talking about some basic processes here and that's you know yeah eq right. high pass filter uh compression and gating you know those are the main tools we're using outside of like time-based effects on that but uh those are kind of what we're going to hone in on here right and, and the truth is you guys don't touch time-based effects till you're quite a bit farther on in this process right yeah exactly yeah so, you know, as you guys describe, I mean, the order of operations I do is almost the same, you know, make sure it shows up on the meter. Although I, I, I guess neither of you mentioned this, but checking it on the meter, I'll also use headphones for a moment just to make sure signal True. is clean. There's yeah. no kind of distortion, no kind of clicking sounds, because if there's anything like that, if I put it in the PA, what, there's a possible risk that like suddenly it might start blasting noise or anything dangerous like that, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh and I'd rather kind of sort that real quick before I, you know, put it through a PA at, you know, 9,800 dB or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but same exact order of operations, you know, check, make sure it's on, on the right channel, in the right place, make sure the signal's clean, pull up my fader, get my gain dialed in. Um, you know, exactly as you guys said, the order of operations is a little bit different depending on what instrument you're talking about, what your source is. But... As you had said, Brendan, you know, at this point, there is some idea in your head of what you want this instrument to sound like. Mm. And that idea comes from experience, doing it for a long time, knowing how something will fit in a mix. And the longer you do this, the better you get at listening to, for example, a full song and going, I know exactly how that kick drum or snare drum or or bass guitar is EQ'd and the tonal characteristics of it that make it fit in this mix without me having to hear it soloed. You know, over time, as you listen to music, you learn that. And what you're trying to achieve in these moments is achieving that soloed sound, if you will, that will fit in the bigger mix. And, you know, the more you do it, the better experience you have with this. And I guess also exactly as you said, Brendan, if this is an artist I've toured with a bunch or know well, and I know their music, I already know what my target should be Mm -hmm. um if it's someone i've never worked with before i'm going to go off of a lot of other cues i'm going to go okay i know their genre which gives me some idea of what the target is Mm -hmm. um i know this is a i don't know 20 by 16 kick or it's a 24 by 18 you know like those kind of things give you an idea of what you should be going for and hopefully i've been on stage and heard it when he's kicked it and i go okay cool i get what the drummer hears and i get what he wants out of this right yeah yeah. Yeah. And then we come out front and we try and achieve this. Sorry, go ahead, Joe. Right. I, no, I was just going to say, yeah, exactly. Like, you know, l- listen, listen to the source and, and don't necessarily try to manage your expectations too. You know, if there's, if someone's hitting a kick drum and it's like, I don't know, a jazz band and the kick drum doesn't have a, it's like a big open sounding kick drum with no, you know, port on it or something like that. It's, it's not going to sound like a Steely Dan kick drum. You know, you have to like, you have to understand that and have to understand what they're going for and, and how to, you know, that, that specific example is something that's going to like, obviously change in the live environment from recording sound. There's going to be, there's going to have to be some sort of interpretation there. Um, So yeah, manage your expectations and uh, don't try to make something necessarily sound like something that it's not. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I'm, and you know, if it's, you kind of got to let, you kind of got to let go of what's in your head sometimes too. You know, yeah, exactly. Like you can't you yeah. can't be bound to it, but you can have an yeah. idea and try and yeah, go right. for it, and then see if that's right for what what kind of music they're playing. But like, yeah, don't just like don't only have like if you only like metal, don't make the jazz. Yeah. try and make the jazz band sound like metal because you will fail. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah. You, you, you took the words out of my mouth. I was literally about to say, well, you know, don't make a jazz band sound like a metal band just because nice. you love Pantera. I yeah. mean, I love Pantera. But I'm not going to yeah. mix everyone like Pantera. That's like a that's a novice mistake. You walk into some some you know small bar venue and like there's some yeah like sort of like quiet like whatever jet you know whatever triple you know uh, three piece or whatever on stage Trio, yeah yeah and there's this like clicky blasting kick drum in this like empty bar and you're just like what the fuck is this guy doing you know like <laughs> don't be that guy don't be that guy 
that guy or that girl. I feel like that is a classic mistake, just doing too much when you first start out too, because like you, you're trying to get to that thing in your head. And I I feel, I definitely feel like I was a victim of this, like going after something, but realizing like the band's already giving it to me, like what they want to sound like or what they're capable of sounding like. So, right. Well, well, Joe's approach here is, is really solid in that regard, right? You, you get it up. So it's audible and you know generally works but then once you hear them start to do things together you suddenly find out oh man the bass it's actually a five string and it's full of really really low lows Mm -hmm. maybe i don't want the kick drum to sit there and it needs to sit above it or maybe it's the other way around maybe it's you know a jazz four string and it doesn't have subby lows and maybe you can slide the kick drum into that area you know so getting it up and an audible and then tailoring it to fit the whole mix mm-hmm. makes sense in the context of an artist you don't know very well. Yeah. If yeah. you know it really well, it's a lot easier to kind of go, this is the sound for this, this is the sound for this, this is yeah. the sound for this, and kind of do them uh, as you go through. But, um, you know, the rest of the process, things like high-pass EQ gates, compression and stuff, it, it's all quite dependent on the source. I, I do typically jump into uh, high-pass before I get to an EQ, it'll yeah. be one of the first things I touch. Yeah, um, I feel to mention that. I agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I do EQ before I get to gates, um, mostly because I want to see how much I can clean it up in general, with the hope that I can keep the gate as loose as possible. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Mostly because I don't know what's going to be coming from the stage. If it's someone I've been touring with for a long time and I know how the drummer plays and I know where the drummer might go light versus heavy, then I can tighten it up a lot more than that. Um, but if I can clean up more of it using EQs uh, and that, thus that requires less gating, then that's a good thing for me. Do you, do you yeah, guys agreed. find? Do you guys find with high pass filters? Do you find it more more necessary in live sound? You know, rather than mixing at home, or do you kind of use one hundred percent? 100 yeah. percent high pass filter is uh i feel like a much more uh, heavily heavily used and uh you know maybe even more of a sensitive uh you know thing in in the live environment because there's so there's, uh, because there's such I've an extended mixed, low end huh i've got mixed feelings there right because yeah. any live microphone ultimately in my opinion needs a high pass yeah right mm-hmm. any open real microphone but i guess the difference there is that on a live show, you might have 60, 100, 200 18-inch drivers kicking that low end at you, whereas yeah. in your studio, you just have some tiny little thing. So if you've got a little bit of extra low end going on in your studio, you can get away with it. If you've got extra low end going on, um, that front row is literally going to yeah. be throwing up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, yeah. <just laughs> it's that that stuff, you know? Yeah. So, yeah, Which could I mean, be you're cool, right. I definitely what do. You're into. I definitely do use more high-pass live but i i think high passes should be on every single open microphone period i don't think it needs to be on every single di source or every single keyboard or every single playback that kind of thing not necessarily yeah yeah. i do think it needs to exist on yeah yeah that makes sense high pass is your friend well so why don't we jump into what high passes do yeah brennan you want to you want to hit this yeah sure so they um they let the high frequencies through right high pass so they they pass right through, but they right. cut the, cut your low frequencies. And uh, various consoles have different high-pass filters. If you're on an analog desk, it's probably the same slope of the filter on each channel. But they kind of they 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 cut out your low end basically. So you know you've got a frequency range that you can sweep it up to. Um, usually, it only it doesn't go all the way up through the whole frequency range. It usually right, stops right. somewhere. Usually you're at something that. like 200 hertz or below. Yeah, yeah. yeah 500. And, and, and just, for, just for clarity, slope is, is measured in decibels per octave, right? Right. right. So, so an, an octave is a doubling of the frequency. So, uh, you know, 50 hertz to uh, 100 hertz is a doubling. And that is thus one octave. So if you've got a slope of 12 dB per octave and you set it at 100 hertz... For the most part, that means 50 hertz is going to be down by 12 dB. And then one more octave below that, it's another 12 dB down. One octave below that, it's another 12 dB down. Right. You're not losing everything below that point where it's set out. It's, it's dependent no. on that yeah. slope. Dependent on the slope. You know? yeah. yeah. And some, some consoles yeah. have variable slopes. You can do 6 dB, 12 dB, 24 dB, depending on you know right. what the, where the setting's at. And some consoles just have a button that says 100 and has a little logo of a slope. 
Yeah. Hey. Yeah. What else do you need? <laughs> and it, and when it's out, it's, it's been 80 a while since I've used one of those. Yeah. So, what channels do you use high passes on, Brendan? Um. Well, I use them on like like you mentioned primarily on almost every single open microphone. Actually, yeah, I can't think of an open microphone I don't use them on, even on like a kick drum or a bass mic. Yeah, I was about to say, even kick and bass, huh? Yeah, I mean, I'm still, I'm still, th- maybe it's a safety thing. I don't know. I just throw it on kick. Usually I do, in a, like a rock for a, like a rock group, I, I don't need 20 hertz usually. Nope. So I mean, I, most of your speakers aren't even going to really put yeah, it out. Yeah, they're not going to get it there. So You're just eating up headroom in the amp. Yeah, yeah I'm going to I'm gonna cut a little bit of that low end so that, you know, all that extraneous stuff isn't going through through my, my chain. And, and, and I assume on a kick drum or something, you're, you're setting that, that high-pass knee at like, I don't know, 40 hertz or something, 50 hertz? Yeah, usually around maybe there. Maybe even lower than that? Maybe, maybe yeah. lower, depending on depending on the music, you know, but yeah, somewhere in, somewhere in that range, in that sub frequency and then I, range. And then what about like vocals? Because vocals are another one where high passes are pretty common, right? So yeah. where I do mean, you typically end up with your high pass on a vocal? Well, obviously I, it's dependent on the singer, but. True, true. Usually in the hundreds somewhere, like around 150 or something like that, maybe a little higher. Some, it could go a little higher, some, maybe up to 200 sometimes. It's, it's kind of in that 130 to 200 range. I try not to go. I try not to get to two hundred because then I feel like it's cutting into their their lower their lower notes. But if they are singing really high all the time, then you know you can get away with a little bit more. But yeah, I, I try right, and, and that kind of doesn't exist anyways. Yeah, I try and be pretty judicious with it. Like I I I, I try and be like find the, their low range and then edge it back a little bit just in case. And I guess just for clarity, like the benefit of doing this is that we've reduced all the bleed of everything else that is low end right. from that microphone including the subs the PA, including the subs that are you know coming out of your console but also going back into that microphone That's all those right. microphones Joe are you are, are are you in about the same range on your vocal Joe for like high pass you know i got to say you know with mac especially his voice is, has some very very rich low end stuff and he gets very close to the microphone sometimes these things are quiet it's a proximity effect um, uh-huh. and, and also some of these rooms are just so fucked in the low end. Um, I, f- I you know, I, f- I often that find myself. a nice way to say it. Yeah. Straight. <laughs> I mean, straight up. That's like, yeah, <laughs> there's a, there's a halo over me right now for describing it that way. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I'll go. I mean, I, I've gone way higher, you know, guilty, guilty as charged. Well, it's, it's, it's a what fight. Is way higher <laughs> for a vocal dude, especially on some consoles, which, there, I feel like you know I have this sneaking suspicion that the slopes that are on the uh, that are you know uh, indicated on the consoles are not actually the slopes that are happening. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I've, ugh, dude, you you guys are gonna you guys are gonna freak out. I mean, I, I've it. gone. As I'm already high as, laughing in my head. I've gone as high as like probably 400 hertz, 500 hertz at Ooh, times. Those, that, that was like high. that the- that was damage control scenario where like straight up still like there was 80 Hertz ringing in, you know, in his uh, vocal. Like <laughs> the, the thing is though, uh, the point really of that is that it is okay to go that high if it's necessary. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Cause I know there was a point yeah. in time where I felt like if I went past 150, I was doing something wrong. Yeah. And that's sure. not actually the case. There are times where going past 150 makes sense. In fact, uh, even doing studio records, um, I will high pass up into the two to two fifty range if I know it's a background singer only, mm-hmm. and they're never going to do lead because I don't need them to take up all of that round space. They're kind of more air, if you will, mm-hmm. and it's okay to not have that there, and thus it makes them cleaner signals. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh you know it's a great tool for clean cleaning stuff up, like you said. You you'll be surprised how much other stuff becomes you know way more audible and it and even seems louder by just like high passing other things super powerful yeah. thing in, in live sound and you know finding that exact that that right point that just that sweet spot with it um that can really you know m- take your mixes really far i think you know even before you even get to eq and compression and all that shit just just high pass and gain structure alone that can get you you know in a really good spot depending on what's going on yeah 
Yeah. I, I will say very often on a vocal, I've got a high pass set somewhere. And then I also have a low band EQ that is right around where the knee of the high pass is taking mm -hmm. out a little bit more. Do you yeah, guys find that you more. do about the same? Yep, I do. Absolutely. Yeah, that ha that I, I do that sometimes too. Because that's like right where that really resonant, that resonant note in their vocal range is a lot of the times. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, if you're looking at an yes. RTA, you can like see it, right? Because it just has yeah. a higher peak. And just depending, I think depending on the room, you know, I'll cut a little bit more there because it might just like be a little too much for yeah for the speakers it, in the room, depending on the singer. I have, you know, this is a general statement, but, you know, bigger the rooms, the bigger low end problems you're going to have, you know, depending on how right. treated they are or whatever. But, uh, mm. you know, especially empty. Um, yeah. True. So, I mean, I'll be honest, I don't, I don't change my mix uh, much going from bigger to smaller rooms until you're to a room where the stage volume itself is kind of, you know, half the mix, if you will. Uh -huh. So, you know, my, my, my vocal high pass and stuff, for the most part, will stay the same, and instead I'll tune the room to make it right. work for right. me, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, but I do agree with you 100% there that, Brendan, um, you know, I might end up with a vocal high pass in like the 140 range or so because when my singer gets close up on the microphone, I want to make sure some of that lows are, are, are still there. Right. Yeah. Or sorry, when they pull away from the microphone, I want to make sure some of the lows are still there. But when they get right up on it, mm -hmm. I might want to clean up some of the 200 to, to 250 range. Mm -hmm. So the high pass is still set below that with like a little kind of scoop taken out just above it or, a, you know, a shelf taken out there just yeah. to kind of ease the knee in a little bit. Yeah. So they don't remove all the stuff down there. It's still there. It's just pulled down a little bit. And yeah, it's... Yeah, it's another thing that I remember when I started doing this. I thought was a wrong thing to do. Mm. I thought that meant I needed to move my high pass higher, but it really doesn't. They're two different kinds of processes, right? Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's just a way of finessing it for like what material is coming through the mic. You know, like if moving the high pass filter up does it for you, then like cool. If not, mm. if you want it to be a little more subtle, dip a little bell shaped EQ down there, or or do like a, a low shelf. Uh, with a yeah, it's almost like it's almost like you're making like a progressive slope, if you will, right? Yeah, you're getting like less of a slope at the start and then a steep slope at the end by doing that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What about inputs versus groups, right? Because I assume you guys take, let's say, multiple mics from a same source, like kick, uh, uh, kick in and out, or snare top and bottom, or bass, DI, and mic, and send those to groups. When you have inputs going to groups, do you guys high pass on the input itself or on the group? Or sometimes both, or does it depend on the signal? I don't know, Joe. What's what's your idea here? I, I would say it depends on the signal. Typically, most stuff would probably get high pass in the channel. Um, if you have some, I don't know, like a scenario I can see where maybe doing it on a group would be appropriate is if you had like a ton of guitar, uh, you know, inputs for whatever reason, and it was just like, um, I don't know, kind of like. Uh, annoying to go and high pass every single one individually you know throw them all through a group high pass them all and then you've got a nice clean you know you know high pass filter across all of those guitar channels you know kind of makes it a little easier to manage right yeah yeah exactly you know i'd, I'd say in scenarios where you're going to be doing the same filter to a larger number of sources you know above three or four um and those can those sources can be grouped together you know do it in a group I don't know. That's that. That's my. Now, that's the way I'd approach it. That that that's an interesting one because technically, if you take a high pass on let's say three guitar mics and set them all to a hundred hertz, right? Yeah. About fifty hertz might might be down by X number of dB on each of those mics. Right. And then when they sum, they are down by you know X number of dB. Yeah. Putting that same high pass on the group doesn't actually take the same amount of low end out because it's summing. Because right. of the summing. And then you just go higher. So, you know, you know what's interesting about that? Yeah, then you just go higher. But you know what's interesting about that is that for years and years and years, I used to only do it on inputs, and I would never high pass on groups. Yeah. And then actually, Brendan, do you remember one time you and I were sitting in the studio, and I was showing <laughs> you how the polarity of a signal can be fully inverted at low frequency just by the phase uh, shift of things yeah. like high pass and low end EQs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So basically the phase shift of, of those high passes can be so significant that you really, really affect the signal. 
I mean, it's not in that point, it's not literally polarity, but if you look at the waveform, it's flipped the other way around, right? So at that point, I figured, you know what, let me try this. And instead of high passing both kick mics individually, I put it on the group. And I did the same for the snare. And I did the same for a couple other channels. Basically, any of the channels where the high passes were going to be either the same or damn close to the same, I just moved that high pass to the group instead. And I actually liked how it sounded better. Mm. Like, to me, somehow it just sounded more right. But in the context of certain scenarios where the high passes are in completely different places, for example, bass DI and bass mic, I high pass them in completely different places. Agreed. Mm -hmm. In that scenario, I'm still going to do it on the input because it doesn't make sense to do it on the group in there in yeah. that case. Yeah. I would right. probably choke the mic up a little bit higher than the DI and let the DI That's what I usually get that real too, yeah. clean low end from the DI. Yeah. So actually, since, since we're talking about high passes and, and bass, yeah, Joe, what do you do with your high pass on your bass, DI, and mic? Tell um, me. Yeah, just like I, I said. I don't think I've ever asked you this. Uh, yeah, just like I said, you know, uh, it, it depends on the source. Specifically for my touring artist, uh, you know, it's, you know, I'm trying to, like, achieve some sort of, I guess, like, cross between a modern live bass guitar and, uh, um, you know, vintage um I don't know, not Motowny, but you know, something, something like that. Um, what's right. the word they use? Uh, oh God, hold on, I got to think of the of the new genre. Um, oh God, vaporwave, vaporwave, <laughs> vaporwave. Um, okay. Yeah, vaporwave. Um, no, but uh, yeah, you know, uh, the the amp will be the tone, so it'll be like probably high passed up to you know uh, two hundred maybe, um, and uh, and low pass a little bit too, just to get some of the stage noise out of there. And, uh, and that'll be like the, you know, the mid range and presence and stuff like that. And then, you know, the, the DI is not opened, but I'll, I'll, you know, it again, going, going for that sort of like more vintagey tone. Um, it doesn't need a whole lot of sub. Um, so, you know, uh, there, there'll still be some high pass on the, uh, on the, on the base DI, um, Again, system dependent, um, and yeah, I'm just trying to get it like bumping just enough, you know, to where it like feels like it's in context, but not overpowering low end or anything like that. Um, yeah, again, talking numbers, you know, maybe t two to four hundred on the mic, and uh, you know, eighty to one sixty on the DI. Brendan, do you do something it, similar? Well, it's interesting to me because I always find myself picking one or the other when I'm mixing and using it as the primary sound. Yeah. yeah. And I, yeah. and I've talked to bassists who like, I'm usually in smaller clubs and one bassist in this band I mixed for was like really pushing to like use a mic. And I think we threw one up, but I didn't end up using it because I like the sound of the DI coming through the PA better. And maybe it's just because I'm in smaller venue. Like what I'm thinking is because I'm in smaller venues and the amp is, I can hear the amp. <laughs> And I can yeah, also hear the true. DI coming through the PA. Does that, is yeah. that, do you think that's why, like, I don't no. combine them yeah. usually? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that well, makes definitely. total sense, you know? Yeah. I mean, you got to yeah. remember, a, a microphone has bleed, right? So if you've right. got a microphone up there, you're not just picking up bass, you're picking up a bunch of other stuff. Right. So if you have the option to have it ultra clean in a small venue where your scenario is already limited by things like noise on stage and all this other stuff that's already bleeding everywhere, mm -hmm. it does make sense often to take the cleaner of the two sources. I, right. I've talked to guys who, who say they just put the bass mic up because it looks weird without it. And then, you know, mm. uh, bonus, bonus points, it's like a backup, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. Backup would be good too. Yeah, in case your DI yeah. goes out. That's a right. Call. And, 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 and Joe, I, I work pretty much the same as you too. Um, my base DI, I will typically use for the low, low end because the amp itself, I'm, I might not be able to uh, get the same kind of lows as I can out of a direct signal. Yeah. Not necessarily as clean. Also, I want a high pass because usually my bass amp's right next to my drum kit. Yeah. So I want to keep the drum kit cleaner. Um, and then I might use it for the ultra top top end that also might not come through the base uh, amp itself that well because most most of the time let's be real we're miking up a single 10 inch speaker right yeah and that's not going to put out that much high end even if your base cab's got a tweeter in it we're not going to separately mic it so it it's just not there 
So mm. I might use the base DI as kind of the scoop, so the ultra-low bottom and some of the ultra-high top. And then I might, you know, high-pass, low-pass the base mic to get that mid-range and maybe get like a little bit of, you know, grit out of it if the amp is gritting up at all. Yeah, totally. Cool. Yeah, this is, this is actually um, a topic I've been wondering about for a while since I haven't really experienced it too much. You know, like getting to use both at the same time. So It's one of those things where... Um, Everyone kind of does their thing, but very few people talk about why they do their thing or have conversations with each other about having done this thing. Mm-hmm. So it's you never kind of really find out yeah. what is quote unquote right or wrong. I mean, none of these are right or wrong, right? It's about right. what sounds good, but yeah. But there are, re- you know, the other reason I like doing what I just described is that then if I've got my mid range for my bass on a fader, I can basically control my EQ of my bass by pushing up my DI versus yeah. pushing up my fader yeah totally. so it's almost like a little bit more scooped sound by pushing up the di and pulling down the the mic that leaves more space for other instruments or if it's a moment where bass needs to be a little bit more forward i push up the mic and i've got more mid-range in it you know that kind of thing that's That's easier movements than it is to go grab eqs and move them around in the middle of a song yeah right agreed agreed anyway so i guess that jumps into low pass filters so i just said i use i use low pass on my bass mic as well but i use it in tons of other places what about you guys uh brendan like where do you use low pass filters um i use them on effects returns for sure i feel like that's oh, yeah. the main place i use them yeah definitely yeah mm-hmm. because especially if it's like digital effects units like analog effects units i'll i'll cut out that top end and then you know just to push things into the background of a venue. Like a lot of times the reverb can just be like too hot and too forward sounding when you bring it in with the vocal and it's just like kind of overpowering. So cutting out that, that top end, maybe doing a little comp combo high pass, low pass with like a shelf, like a high shelf. Right. Yeah. Kind of yeah, smooth totally. it out a little bit. Makes, and makes effects sound yeah. expensive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> well, even even if you think about a physical room, right? When somebody's close to you, um, you know you can hear them nice and clearly. The farther away they get from you, the low end becomes kind of woofy, and all like that top end clarity just disappears. It's mm-hmm. just not there anymore, mm-hmm. and it's part of the reverb. Uh, digital reverb processors often don't really do that. So if you want to do exactly what Brendan just described, make something seem like it's farther away. If you start taking away the top end in that reverb, yeah, you do make it feel away. farther away. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Whereas, you know, you, you leave the top end in, it feels like kind of an effective verb rather than a distance type verb. You know? right. It's also sometimes depending on what's going on, if there's a lot of delay or something like that, it's like almost hard to distinguish what's what. So that kind of like right. put, draws a line as to where it's like, okay, this is the direct and this is the effect. I don't know. Right. Yeah. That's all happening subliminally, by the way. <laughs> I, I do the same thing, too. You know, my low pass on my effects. I also use low pass a lot on guitars. I was just going to say guitars. A lot of high-gain yeah. guitars, they've got a bunch of sizzly top end that yeah. just doesn't need Don't it need either. It. It doesn't really Don't have any it. musical value. Yeah, hmm. not at all. And amp hiss and all that stuff, you, you know, you, you start getting into higher channel counts especially, and you're, you're going to want ways to, you know, uh, uh, de-noise and... Uh, Low pass clean filter, things baby. up really yeah well the other thing is is if i want to make space for my symbols to be shiny and sheen and, and without bright, being harsh i yeah. need to remove it from other things yeah mm. totally without without you know hurting. so i need to make space for it yeah exactly mm-hmm. so you know rather than just taking my eq on my symbols and just making them super bright well now it's just even brighter than the other stuff that has useless high end up there. If I start <laughs> taking the high end out of a bunch of other channels, I don't need to EQ my symbols to be brighter because nothing else is in the way of it anymore. Yeah. All right. Well I guess I guess we've we've kind of just slowly accidentally slid into EQing now, huh? Yeah. It's pretty pretty natural progression. Yeah. I guess this is also the mental progression as you're listening to channels and going through it, right? This is how how I think the three of us all approach it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So why, like, what are we getting into with EQ? Like, I guess we've talked about the reasons trying to smooth out transitions between the high pass and low pass filters, but I guess, Joe, what's your other, what what are you thinking of first as like a reason for why you move to like your parametric EQs and stuff like that? Well, you know, it, it starts out with that, that, uh, 
corrective versus tone shaping thing you know uh first it's a corrective thing and by corrective you could either mean it could be a tone thing it could be like yo this is like way too harsh or way too boomy or like this is something is glaringly wrong um it doesn't sound natural it doesn't sound good and it's got to go so pull that shit out that's corrective um another that's always cutting um well i guess maybe not you know if there's like you know yeah yeah it could be it could be boosting too yeah it's like this thing's way too thin uh you know and uh cutting the top end isn't really doing it uh it's easier there's less moves to be done um if i just boost some low end yeah sure totally i Um, I think you you do find yourself cutting more often than boosting though correct is that there's same for you guys there's like in the ether of audio engineers there's the the concept that like you know subtractive eq will get you uh, to better places faster um a lot of debate around that um but generally speaking i feel like that's you know a relatively good starting point to you know, a starting point, um, and do you use think it as a guideline, but you don't yeah. have to stick to it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Do you think that maybe it's that, that, uh, like adding EQ or boosting things can get you into trouble more quickly? It, well, in live, okay, good point. Yeah. In live sound, absolutely. Because there's always that, uh, you know, uh, risk of feedback in live sound, yeah. which, yeah. Yeah, in uh, which you know that's that that was going to be my other reason for corrective EQ. If there's feedback happening and it's like yo, the gain has to be here uh, because this is where the level needs to be, but there's just a little bit of feedback, cut it out. You know, that's that's yeah. the obvious answer. Um, and then you go over to tone shaping where it's more of a preferential thing, and it's like you know, um, I want this to be a little bit brighter. We're going to boost some top end or cut some low end or low you know or this is a little bit boxy um just for you know for my own sanity i'm gonna cut a little four or five hundred something like that um the, you know i want the i want the kick to be a little bit beefier you know it's it's the tone is great just if i could just you know kick kick me in the butt a little bit more um you know boost that 60 or 80 hertz or whatever um yeah. you know you know something i kind of want to point out that that aligns bit with what you're saying but also breaks from it so i also approach it in the same way that you're kind of describing right and ultimately what i try to do is i do corrective things first right and then i go to the creative portion of it which is the tone shaping and those corrective things for me are pretty much always cuts and usually they're cuts to kind of fix something that i don't like about the source itself Mm -hmm. or the mic choice itself or the mic position itself Right? right, and it could be that there's just you know this woofiness of proximity effect from having a, a mic too close to the guitar amp's speaker. Uh-huh. It could be just high end coming off the speaker that I just don't like, and it's maybe a little bit whistly or a little bit harsh. But I think a good point to make here is that if you've got enough stuff to correct in that signal, maybe there's something that you need to change in your source mm-hmm. or your microphone or your mic placement. Absolutely, and I. I in live sound, it is so fast for people to just skip right past that and skip straight to EQing and, and messing well, with things. We don't often have and time. Yeah, I get it. You know, we are in a fast environment. Yeah. I, I totally get that. But when you have the time, fix it in the right place. And the right yeah. place is either the instrument, the amp, the, you know, the source, or the microphone, or the mic placement. So if you have the ability to do that when you've pulled it up, do start there before yeah. jumping straight to the EQ. Yeah, you know, that's that's uh, you know, that's 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 a way of EQing it at the source, you know, the microphone. Um totally. You know, among other properties, uh yeah, it's 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 a different EQ curve. Moving it or changing out the mic, yeah. Yeah, ultimately it's the same as, as making an EQ change, except, you know, you're not in- incurring the kind of phase penalties if you will or Yeah. Or yeah. even the complexity of just remembering where your EQs are. You know, if you've got a mic in, in front of an amp and the amp itself sounds good and, and the source coming to you is great because of your placement and your mic choice and your source, that means if you have to do the show another day on a different console, you still just gain it up and you high pass, you low pass, and you're done. You don't have to try and match this EQ you did on another day. Yeah. So ultimately, in the context of getting consistency, if you fix this stuff before it even gets to your desk, yeah, you will source. be more consistent on more days, you know? Yeah, totally. Much like recording, you know? It's like if you can get as much right as you can at the source, you know, in a perfect world, we have a great band with fantastic sounding gear. Um, but yeah, hey, sometimes we don't, though. 
And in which case, you're going to have to use that equalizer. You, you got you to <laughs> fix it. So, so this here's the opposite question of that. You know, how much EQ is too much EQ? Because I know mm. there have been times where I'm looking, especially nowadays, you see it on a screen, right? Yeah. I remember when I was on analog days, yeah, on, on a kick drum, I'd take low, mid, I'd bump it to 400, and I'd pin it all the way to minus whatever the console let me do. <laughs> yeah. I'd go all the way, and maybe it was minus 18, maybe it was minus 12, depends on the desk, right? If you looked at that on a screen, it would probably look crazy, it but it sounded up. good. Yeah. But yeah. now, since we can see it on a screen, some of this stuff looks crazy, so it's really easy to assume that, that what you're doing is too much. So I, I guess this is an open question. How much EQ is too much EQ? And do you guys feel the same way as I do, where sometimes you look at it and you think this is crazy, Yeah. but, but if it, it sounds, sounds right, I guess it, it's right. Yeah. Um, you know, I feel like I fall into this trap a lot. Um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a too much EQ uh, violator. I think sometimes, um, <laughs> how much is too much, you know, when you're, when it starts to affect your gain before feedback ratio drastically, that is way too much okay. EQ. Yeah. You know what I mean? When Good it's argument. like, yeah. when it's like, if you had your fader at unity and it's like an audible signal without any EQ, but then you start pushing and, and then pulling frequencies to get it to stop feeding back. And with the, with the fader at, you know, dimed and the EQ all hacked up, it sounds worse and is, you know, potentially not as intelligible as it would be just at zero with no EQ, then that's too much EQ. Does that make yeah. sense? Did I say, yeah, any, it does. Did I say you correct know, words there? I, th I think you did. I think, okay, you, cool. I mean, you definitely said words. I don't know what they meant. <laughs> I think it's a good exercise to bypass your EQs sometimes. Yeah, good yeah. call. And, good call. And usually if you've got a bunch going on, usually you're changing your whole gain staging by doing a, this bunch. So yeah. bypass your EQ, move your fader so that the you know, overall level feels about the same, and then put it back on and you know, kind of level match bypassing. Yeah. If it is not better with your EQ on, start over. Clear your EQ and do it again. Yeah, start over. Yeah, I super support that. And it's okay to do that. Yeah, yeah. clearing your EQ can be like life-changing. Yeah, <laughs> it'll like, set you free. You, yeah, like if you've been using the same EQ on like a digital console and you pull it up like all the time to like start out with, like I found when oh. I'm doing like la with like lav mics and stuff like that, I was like working at this church and I we had like EQ the shit out of this lav mic for a while and then I was like Oof. actually doing a class with volunteers there. And when we came in, I was like, so here's the EQ that's on it that we did the other day. Let's wipe it clean and do it again. And we did like almost nothing to it. And it was, it got better. better. But better. Yeah, yeah, it was better. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah, less is more sometimes. Yeah, you can learn from like, it's a great learning experience to wipe it clean and start over again. Here's something a little crazy that I'm sure someone that's listening to this podcast is going to go, you're an asshole, don't do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if you're in the middle of a show and you're hearing it go on and you hear something that seems wrong to you, um, you, can, you can move your EQ around and, and, and cut it, right? Whatever. That, to me, is harder than taking a band of that EQ, making it super narrow, and boosting it a right. bunch, yeah. Oh, yeah. And finding that thing that's wrong and cutting it, right? Because if you've got a busy mix, a lot of stuff going on, crowd screaming, all that stuff happening at the same time, you are going to be slower trying to find this thing that you're trying to fix by cutting and sliding it around than you are by boosting it. And to be honest, the crowd, maybe they'll notice it, but they're not going to care. <laughs> they don't It's going to be like it. a second of them going, and then it's gone. Yeah. And you found your frequency and you cleaned it up. And you made your show better. Yes, you did something a little odd by boosting something to the crowd that they can hear. But after that one second of you kind of messing about, fired. you made it better. Fired. Yeah, well, yeah, I'm probably <laughs> fired anyways just because I'm a dick. <laughs> I, but, I mean, do, what? Do you guys, you guys disagree? Well, no, no. no, no you, you, maybe not I, during I your show. I, depends. Yeah. You, you can also have fun with it, too. Like... I mean, if you're not searching for something bad and you've got like parametric on your guitars and it's in the middle of like a solo or like some crazy part of the song, just like boost it up a little bit and sweep it around. You get a little like phaser thing going around in your mix. And <laughs> Fired. Cool. Yeah. That's, <laughs> how, that's how you have a little, effect. you got to have a little fun. 
Yeah, and, right. uh, there, there are yeah. certain channels you can't get away with that on for sure. Like, like if it's a vocal, Oof. I don't think you can do it in that same way. <laughs> what, <laughs> what I would do is if I already have a cut and it's maybe not in the right place, is maybe back that cut off by a bit and just kind of move it around to go, is this the right place? And yeah. listen to it in that way, mm-hmm. as opposed uh, to boosting it. You know, there are different methods of doing this, but as, as far as I'm concerned, I guess the only point there is that it's okay to mess with EQs during the show yeah. as long as you know what you're trying to achieve before you start messing with it. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, I find myself doing that. Like during soundcheck, I'll do a bunch of corrective stuff to get my mix in the place, and then I reassess when the show starts, obviously I'm like keeping an eye on the levels and like mixing during the show, but I'm also, I'm thinking about the EQ cuts and boosts that I made and maybe tweaking them a tiny little bit just to like, see, you know, like, Oh, with, with the rooms full now I can bring that cut back up a little bit and I'll start edging it up and, you know, try and get a little more fullness to the vocal. If it was ringing out in the low mids during sound check, you know, you can, you can bring more life to the, the mix by bringing back the stuff you were cutting out before. Especially if this is a fresh show and it's not an artist you've worked with a bunch before. Yeah. You know, now, now that the room is full, you're not getting the reflection off the floor. You're maybe not getting that guitar amp blaring in your face anymore. Cause there's a hundred other faces in the way that have absorbed it. You know, mm-hmm. you can definitely clean up your mix as the room fills up in, in those contexts for sure. Yeah. So what about those times where, you know, you're trying to get, <laughs> 10k out of your kick drum and you just turn it up and it's just not there <laughs> you know I, don't know I don't know why you're trying to get 10k out of your kick drum you must well, be in the most metal of the metalist bands you gotta yeah. tape a like don't you tape a quarter to the beater head or to the beater Ugh. yo that's a real thing that's yeah. a real thing yeah that's a thing they even make the little kick pads that have the little metal pad in it yeah that's dope yeah. I want one <laughs> Maybe find another if 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 it's not there, I would say find the next best thing, you know. Go for the three K or the five K, you know. Find find that attack somewhere else. If it's if it's if it's just if it just ain't happening, you gotta you gotta make it happen somewhere else, you know? This is not this is not yeah. the frequency you're looking for. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> just Jedi mind trick yourself into yeah, straight going up. to a different frequency. I, yeah. No, it's it's the audience at that point. You're Jedi mind tricking the audience. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is yeah, this is not the frequency you, you make want. them think it's ten K. Yeah. yeah. Well, there there's there's a there's a learning curve to understanding what you're getting from the stage, right? You might be getting a bass that doesn't have that sub, sub, sub frequencies down in the 40 to 60 range. It might mm-hmm. just not be in the signal. So if you grab an EQ and try and push it, there's not, nothing there to push. Right. So that's not the solution in those scenarios. And, and, and same with top end. Sometimes that top end isn't there. Yeah. And there are workarounds to this. That, that's where more complex things come in such as like subharmonic synth plugins or like an R bass type thing or even uh, adding some sort of harmonic distortion mm-hmm. that's a way to get more high frequency that isn't there vitamin right. or if it's like a vocal sometimes <laughs> I psych people out by sending that vocal into a reverb that's super short but the reverb is really bright mm-hmm. so it feels like there's more top end in the vocal even though there isn't that vocal coming off of let's say a crown CM311 that, that headset mic that thing's got damn near nothing above five, six, seven K. <laughs> you need to find a way to make it seem like it's bright and crispy, even though it's not, you know? Mm-hmm. Cool. But I think that's just a thing you learn over time, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Like yeah. if it's not doing anything, then there's no point in wasting time doing it. So I think before we jump into gates, compression and, and grouping and VCAs and, and the rest of this episode, we're already at an hour. So I think <laughs> we're going to have to cut it off here and continue this on the next one. I think Damn. that's a good call. It's already been an and hour. That's that's wild. Yeah. S- All right. Sixty-three well, minutes, man. There you go. Well, Oof. I guess when these guys get it, it'll be different. <laughs> let's uh, yeah, let's close the gate on this episode. Oh wow! Oh. Wow, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> oh man! All right. Thanks everyone again for listening to another episode of Live Sound Bootcamp. We've got a little announcement. We've got a Facebook group up now. So if you just go to Facebook yeah. and search live sound bootcamp, uh, you can post, post on there, get in touch with us. We'll be posting about the episodes and everything else. And you know, anything else you find cool in live sound post it up there. We're looking for your feedback. Yeah. No pun intended. Yeah. And any questions oh. you guys have, you know, you know free- yeah, pun, 
feel free to give us uh, you know Puns, topics you yeah. want to hear about in future episodes audio yeah. memes all that kind of stuff and oh please if you do like the uh, podcast head over to apple Podcasts and give us a review because that helps boost things up and gets more people to listen to the podcast so yeah it just boosts brendan's ego nothing else <laughs> well that too <laughs> i gotta get hyped for you know recording some way scrolling through the, yeah. the reviews anyways for that drum practice yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right well thanks for listening we'll catch you guys in the next episode Take it bye easy.